The Rami's Aid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rami's Aid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is entrepreneur Vijay Raji. Today, Vijay is founder and CEO of Statsig, based in Seattle, Washington. Vijay grew up in India, began his career 10 years with Microsoft, then hopped over to Facebook for 10 years before starting his own company, Statsig. We'll discuss his impressive journey, as well as some entrepreneurial nuggets for you listeners. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vijay Raji. Vijay Raji, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this one. Vijay, this is going to be a fun show because I want the listeners to hear about your journey of growing up in India, coming to the U.S. in search of a career, your experience in working with two of the biggest companies on the planet with Microsoft and Facebook, and now starting your current company, founder and CEO of Statsig. But something I learned about you that was super interesting, and I'll say super spicy. Okay. Is that you're getting nervous, and that is how you met your wife Ashley. And to not let the listeners wonder, you met her. I heard salsa dancing, and would love for you to tell that story because I don't know the story, but for you to share that with the listeners, if true, that is true. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that you're starting off with that story. Absolutely. Um, any any CEO talk starts with salsa dancing, right? <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, Rami. Well, thanks for having me. This is uh. This is the first uh, meeting of the year, and I'm really excited about this. And I'm really excited to like share spicy stories. <laughs> so kicking it off with the salsa dancing story, I was working at Microsoft. I was like a software engineer and uh, all by myself here, you know, single guy trying to like get some social life going. So, you know, from friend's recommendation, I just started like, okay, well, I'll go learn some dancing. And salsa dancing was in vogue, like, you know, what, like 2003, four, five in that range. Yeah, so I learned a little bit of salsa dancing. Nothing, nothing even like close to like what most people can do. It was just like the bare steps and stuff. And luckily, you know, I was like, you know, invited to a party where you know they were salsa dancing, and I was like, you know, having learned a few steps, I was like confident enough to go and like ask a girl out to like go dance uh, on the on the dance floor. And so, and that like you know was Ashley. And that night um, we exchanged numbers, and then I called her and like you know got on a date for dinner and all that stuff. And like, you know, years later we got married and now we have kids and all that. So it all started with salsa dancing. So I always like go back and talk about like, okay, well, of all the return of investment that I've like made, this is one of the highest. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you guys still dance? We dance at home. We don't go out to the ballroom or anything, but it's kind of like, you know, one of those things that uh, you put on the back burner uh, when the kids and like life takes over. Uh, but we used to go all the time. Uh, you know, every week we'll go out um, some sort of dancing. Um, so we we really enjoyed it. That was kind of like one of our common things that we both enjoyed. We don't have to like, you know, do anything fancy. I love that. And I'm jealous. I have two left feet, so I, c- I could not pull off the the salsa. I actually, VJ, I, I geeked out a little bit because I was like salsa dancing. I know nothing about it. And I found out it's it's the most popular form of dancing on the planet. That's probably somewhat well known. But according to data from your former company, Facebook, there's over 200 million people that salsa dance around the globe, which is more than the next three most popular dances, which is bachata, swing dance, and tango combined. 
That's incredible. I thought was I know it's unbelievable, and that salsa actually originated in the U- United States. I just assumed it was a Southern. Uh, did you know that? No, I had no idea. I thought it was a Latin dance. It's for sure a Latin dance. It was originated in New York City, um, and the salsa, the term salsa, was coined by Finea Records, which was a label founded by a Dominican-born composer Johnny Pacheco and an Italian Jerry Mascucci. And I'm saying that now because I had to do my research and read that, but I was shocked because I figured that was South America. Well, thanks to Johnny and Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. They're they're responsible for you, your wife and kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, you know, that has actually like established my roots here in Seattle. And, you know, I, I never like, you know, went out because my wife is from the Seattle area. She's got family here. So if I think back and like in a lot of how my life has turned out and how my career is shaped, it's all like, you know, I would pinpoint to that one particular moment. Uh, that's fantastic. VJ, thanks for sharing. So each and every interview I do, VJ, I start with a standard question for my guests. And I've had CEOs like yourself, venture capitalists, athletes, entrepreneurs. The first one is always how you start your day. Some are a complete hot mess. Some are very regimented, uh, almost military style. Would love for you to share with the listeners, VJ, how you start your day. Yeah, absolutely. In order to appreciate how I start my day, I have to talk a little bit about like how when I go to bed. On a regular basis, I go to bed around between 2.30 and 3 a.m. And so I get about six hours of sleep. So I usually wake up around 8.30 to 9 o'clock. That's after my kids go to school. And then that kind of like, you know, start off with a coffee in the morning and then catch up on emails, mostly around like Statsig, the the company uh, startup. And then I also like look up on all of my dashboards and look at the metrics and how are things going, how many new people signed up, you know, where the the event volumes are are trending upwards or downwards. And if there's anything that is wrong, I want to like quickly send an email out to the team to like take a look at it. I take care of all of that and then I you know, hit the showers. And then I come into work around like 10 o'clock. So I try to aim to like get here at 10 o'clock, but that's kind of like before uh, I get into work, you know, uh, get ready and get started. I, it's one of those things where grew up in the tropics, I have to take a shower before anything happens in the morning. So that's my, you know, it's kind of like the, the time before and after of the day. And so it kind of like marks how I start the day. That's so interesting. So have you always been a night owl? I have been. You have. Okay. Because I, I mean, for me, the only time I'm up at 2 or 2.30 is to wake up to pee and then go back to bed. Because <laughs> I, I, I go to bed early and then I wake up fairly early. But you've always been uh, a night owl. I have been. It's also like um, helped out quite a bit with like, you know, we have two kids and I put the kids to bed. And after that, I get a, a solid chunk of like four or five hours to get some work done. I'm most creative at night. And so that's kind of like, you know, time when I can sit down, think about stuff or experiment with stuff, you know, and usually I'm like on my computer coding or writing. Uh, And so that helps me. Otherwise, you know, I I think like I've tried waking up in the mornings and when I was a little you know, younger and never worked out that way. I could never like, you know, so my brain's foggy during that time in the morning. So I've always been at late night. Is there a workout routine? It would be more in the afternoon if you did do one, right? I would love to have a workout routine, but this is, I'm a little bit haphazard in that way. I mean, I just started this, the start of a new year. So I started like, you know, getting down. Um, so we have a home gym. So we're getting down to the home gym. My wife works out every day, every single day. So she's always like, you know, come join me when I'm working out. I'm like, 
some days I do, some days I don't. So I wish I could like do it a little bit more uh, regularly. So next, your career, your entrepreneurial career. We want to get into that. But I thought it was interesting when I heard everyone in your family, including yourself, wanted to go into medicine. And number one, is that true? Number two, what kind of medicine? And then I'll lead with a third one. Why did you decide to become a software engineer instead? Okay, so <laughs> I grew up in India. And if you'd known about like, you know, the aspirations of like kids growing up in India, this is like in the 90s. There's only like three or four professions that everybody wants to go into. Like number one in everybody's list is like, you know, if you can get an admission into a medical school, you want to become a doctor and like you want to go into medicine. And that's you know, every parent's aspiration for their kids as well. And so it's kind of like generational like that way. And the second best is like, you know, engineering. And it's like, okay, well, you can, if you don't get into medicine, then, you know, you should go and like do some engineering. And so you grow up in that and you kind of like, you know, no matter what your aspirations or what your interests are, you kind of like you're led into believing that, you know, you want to have to try medicine. So the story is, even though I was really good in math and I really kind of uh, gravitated towards computer science because I was doing, you know, these, these computer classes and stuff. And I was really interested in that. But, you know, as the society makes you fall into like, okay, well, you have to try medicine. And there is this college that um, I wrote, wrote for and I had, uh, you know, an entrance exam. So you have to like write, take an exam and there's 15 seats available for that college. It's like the most prestigious college in the, in the, in the region. And I was placed on the 16th of the entire, you know, ranking. And I was like waiting, waitlist number one, usually every year the waitlist moves up and you kind of like get it. So I was pretty confident. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, number one. So if anyone moves then I'm getting in. So um, I was pretty confident that we're going to become a doctor. And then that particular year, nobody moved out of that college. So the wait list never moved up. And so I was kind of like left behind in a way. All my friends that I, you know, were school, went to school with, they all went into the medical, medical school. And so I was like, okay, well, what is the second best choice? So let's go write an engineering entrance exam. And so I wrote the engineering entrance exam. I got a, a good rank in there and then got into a good college. And so that's kind of like how I ended up becoming an engineer, even though I really wanted to be an engineer, I kind of like stumbled into being a computer science engineer. So that's a, that's the story of a lot of kids actually in India. You stumbled into salsa dancing, met your wife, you stumble into engineering. This has been your entire fantastic career. It's just funny to hear, you know, two for two so far. I know it's, it's interesting, but it's more importantly, like, you know, even though I, it took me a roundabout path. It was very clear for me that passion is all about like, you know, software and computer science. And, you know, Microsoft was my dream, dream company, even before like I went to you know high school. So it's kind of interesting how I, you know, figured out a way to like get there, even though it may be a little bit um, roundabout. So really quick growing up in India out here in the States, the idea, uh, especially in Silicon Valley is men and women that grow up in India, the pressure on school is so, so, so intense, way more so than here in the U.S. Did you feel that growing up uh, in your upbringing? One good thing about growing in um, that kind of an upbringing is you don't have perspective. You don't know how the world is outside of like, you know, the little the little town, the little college and the little you know, region that you live in, you grow up in. And so I had zero perspective of like how hard is it outside or how easy it is outside. And so, you know, I, I, I don't have the exact stats, but I can tell you 
uh, the people that wrote the entrance exam in the 15 seats, I am pretty sure there's probably hundreds of thousands of people that wrote that exam. And so, you know, getting in that college is like extremely hard. And uh, even though I, I was kicking myself, like, you know, getting 16, I was kind of like, never really like thought about it in that sense of like, okay, well, this, uh, it, it's not normal. It, it, it's, it's extremely hard. And then when I came to the U.S., I was like, that was like a moment of like shock. Like, oh, wow. You know, things are not always that competitive everywhere. And so you, one of the things that I really appreciate about the U.S. and I want to like, you know, offer to my kids is the opportunity to do whatever you want to do and whatever your passion is. And you kind of like, you know, start to chase that versus like letting it land on you. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually going to be a question I was going to ask is that I know you have kids probably taking the best of what you grew up with and then trying to implement that into the U.S. system now that you're in you know, Seattle, Washington. Just interesting to, to hear that because now you're seeing both both sides, right? Being here in the States. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, growing up, you kind of like have perspective on like how things could be. And then you look around and you're like, I, I'll tell you, there was one computer in the library in my town. And I have to like go early before the library opens and wait for that until I can like, you know, get access to that computer. And even if I did get, I would kind of like you know, try to hog as much as possible. And then when I come over here, you kind of like realize like, oh yeah, you, anybody could go and like grab a computer and learn whatever they want to learn. You can borrow as many books as you want. The opportunities here are just incredible. And you appreciate it when you come from where a place where you don't have that kind of like an opportunity. And so uh, when you're growing up here, it's probably like not very easy to appreciate that. And so uh, this is one of those things that I want to like make sure that my kids understand. So now founder and CEO of StatSig, but previously you did spend a decade at each of the two largest companies on the planet with Microsoft and Facebook. So I want to dive in a little bit on that. And I have a bunch of questions here, but the first is how did you get your start with Microsoft? Yeah, it's a good story. Microsoft has always been my dream company, like, you know, when I was growing up and it's cool. And when I finished my college in, uh, in India, I got campus recruited into a consulting company. And the consulting company is, is a really good company. It's an Indian company that actually put me on a Nokia project. And so I got the opportunity to go to Finland but like, you know, growing up at the topics, the first time I like go to Finland and like see some snow and stuff. And so I went in in March and that was like great. It was spring. I really enjoyed it. First time ever outside of a country. Really enjoyed the time. And then like, you know, as November hit, I'm like, oh my God, this is so cold. <laughs> Please take me out of here. So that was when I kind of like, okay, well, why don't I just apply for Microsoft? So, you know, one of my friends had a connection. So I got through putting an application to Microsoft through my friend. And, you know, lo and behold, they called me. They called me. I picked up that call late, late. I don't remember, like, you know, two o'clock in the morning or something like that in India. And that was a, an HR interview. And I didn't realize that was an interview. I was just like waiting for a phone call. And so, you know, once I had cleared that interview, they had a few folks like, like me, about four or five people um, that they flew all the way to like New Delhi. And then they flew a team from Microsoft. This was pre-2001 to interview us. And off those people, I, I feel like in a half of us got an offer to join Microsoft in California. And I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is so lucky. Um, you know, what are the odds um, that um, you get a job like this directly uh, to fly to the US and be part of the company that I've always dreamt of being part of? So uh, yeah, I immediately took the offer. No negotiation, nothing. I was like, yeah, give me the offer. I'm here. 
And uh, and then, you know, a couple of months later, I flew, uh, landed in San Francisco. You know, stumbled my way to find out, like you know, my, my temporary home. That was my journey to like you know join a company. And I worked there for about a year and a half, and then moved to Seattle because that was a headquarters, and like you know, stayed there for the, another eight and a half years. So amazing. Throughout, like totally enjoyed the total experience of like you know finding a job and joining there. Well, it's a good thing they called you at 2 a.m. because that's prime time for you, right? <laughs> that's when you're awake. <laughs> that's good. That is right. That is so, right. Qu- question for you, VJ. Microsoft, massive company. I think last count I saw, there were about 180,000 people. Is there anything you learned then that you have now taken with you at Statsig? Yeah, a lot of my initial learning happened at Microsoft about you know how software is built, how teams uh, cooperate and operate and build together, how software is shipped and maintenance of the software. And so many things that I learned that, that was all from Microsoft. And then interestingly, when I left Microsoft and I joined Facebook, it was a, a another shock, one of those cultural shock, which is Microsoft at that point was building software for it's kind of like you know prepackaged software. You 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 buy it and then you use it and then the next version comes up and then you buy the next version and then you use it. And it takes years to build a prepackaged software like that. So I was working on Windows when I left Microsoft. It's kind of like you write some code and it takes years before that code actually gets released to people. And then I joined Facebook and on the first week I wrote a bunch of code that got released to at that point I'm gonna guess about 500 or 600 million people instantaneously. And I was just blown away. I'm like, how is this even working? How can this even stay? At that time, they didn't have apps. It was all just websites. So how is this website alive and kicking and not breaking down all the time? So to me, that was like a huge learning. Again, that was because of the perspective I had at Microsoft, you know, what I learned there. I was able to like look at the new form of building software with some, you know, critical eyes and appreciate the new way of building software. And so that's kind of like, you know, a huge learning. And to me, that kind of like profound learning happened throughout my 10-year career at Facebook. And all of those combined together is what uh, led me to go and build Statsic. So, you know, if I think about like, you know, what Statsic is all about, it's like, it's the set of tools and the processes that we had access to at Facebook that helped us build software so fast compared to like, you know, all the other uh, people in the industry. So those are the ones that we're you know, okay, well, let's go build those and let's make it available for everyone. So everyone can have the same set of tools so they can move fast. I have a series of questions on the Microsoft Facebook to, to Statsig. But before I get there really quick, Microsoft obviously found you very cool story. How did Facebook after 10 years, I think it was about 2011, how did they then find you or vice versa? Yeah, 2010, I think around November timeframe, they called me. Uh, so they were just setting up a Seattle office at Facebook. And one of the recruiters just out of the blue reached out to me. And I was like, ah, um, I had just watched that movie. What's that movie called? Um, the Social Network? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I just watched that movie with my wife. And I was like, I mean, you know, I was curious. Okay, what is this company? It's kind of cool. Um, I have an account, but I never really like thought about it in terms of like, you know, how the team was and what they were building. So it kind of gave me a, a little bit of a curiosity. So I was like, okay, well, I'll take the call. And then one thing led to another. They flew me down to Palo Alto at that time. And then like, you know, asked me to go meet with a, a whole bunch of folks. And I, when I was there, I was like blown away. The energy there, I saw Mark just sitting on his desk by, you know, among everybody else. And so it's not like, you know, like 
Microsoft was at that time. You know, Bill Gates was in his in his own building, in his own floor, completely inaccessible. And then here you see um, the CEO is just sitting among like everybody else. So it was kind of like interesting. I, I wanted to be part of that culture. I wanted to be part of this group. I wanted to build with these folks. And then you know, you go through the interview, and I got an offer, and I'm like, oh, I want to try this out. It's amazing. I, you know, that's that's where I was going, VJ, with these questions. The Microsoft, one hundred eighty thousand people, massive company, tons of stuff you learn. Facebook picks you up, and I think very roughly they had maybe three thirty five hundred employees, and that scaled to seventy thousand while you were there. So all of a sudden, you're seeing this behemoth in Microsoft and this scale that is, you know, once in a lifetime scale. And the amount of stuff you probably learned from all that combined, I think, is incredible in the twenty years. Yeah, it is. So when I joined Facebook, I'm going to say it was about 1600 people. And when I left, there were like 80,000 people. And it was, it was, a, it was once in a lifetime opportunity to see a company grow from like just a small set. I know they, I think if I remember correctly, Facebook was still called a startup in 2011. And so, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going from a big company to a startup. Little did I know that Facebook will grow that fast and scale that fast. Um, so I was like, good to be part of that journey. Now, your new company, StatSig, first of all, can you let the listeners know in general what StatSig is, what you guys do? Yeah. So like, you know, one of the things that I learned at Facebook is the culture of building software was was just this strong and it was built on top of values of like moving really fast and doing the right things for users and getting products out as quickly as possible without like too many debates, too many conference room conversations, right? And so if I like sat down and thought about like, how did this happen to be? And if I distill it down, what drives this culture? I could pinpoint it to a set of tools. And these tools allowed everyone in the company to make the right decisions based on data. And the data will inform. And so um, that leads to a few downstream cultural consequences. One is that you don't get overly attached to your ideas and be humble enough to admit that your ideas may be wrong. And the way you admit that is by checking data. If data tells you and if the users don't like what you're proposing, you admit that and you move on. And that kind of like helps with also um, how you evaluate people later on instead of like um, the merits of like how good your idea is. You actually evaluate, quantify it and then the quantification leads to like how much impact you had um, on the business, on the company, on the users. And those are all the tools that was kind of like, to me, amazing. Like somebody had the forethought of like investing in those tools in the early stages of the company. So when I looked around well, at Facebook, like, you know, what are the kinds of tools that are available for the other companies? You know, why aren't other companies moving this the same way as Facebook is? you realize that those tools are not accessible. Those tools are very sophisticated and not available, you know, generally outside in the industry. So that was the genesis of like what Statsig is. So Statsig is a set of data analytics tools. And these tools will help you build software, make right decisions. You know, whether a product you think or you've innovated is actually working the way it is meant to work or is it actually hurting your business? Understanding that, quantifying that, and then making product decisions based on that is what Statsig is all about. So it's a set of tools, framework, which eventually lets you build a strong product building culture. Perfect. Thank you for sharing. So my next question, you and the stuff I've read, I'm going to make you blush. You are the man at Facebook up in Seattle. Like you are the man, right? So, and I'm thinking like you're in this great company, you're the man in Seattle, 
And then you take this leap to do your own startup. You've been a big company. You've been at Facebook where they scale, but you've never done this startup. So a couple things there. One, you know, was this a, hey, no brainer, I'm going to do this? Or were you, I mean, like me, I would second guess, third guess. What inspired you? Was there a moment where you were like, you know what, I'm doing this today? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think it's ever, you know clear it's 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 always you're always like doubting you're always thinking twice and thrice and maybe 100 times and your timing may not be right the, the positioning may not be right the idea may not be right the team may not be right there's like hundreds of different factors and so for me if i look back at like the the leap that i made to microsoft like say okay i'm going um that was one of those things i had like a good feeling about it, but I had no idea what I was in for. And I took the leap. And then between Microsoft and Facebook, it was a small startup. Remember that, right? You know, it's like the small budding startup with like a movie made out of. And so I was like, okay, well, that inspired me enough to like make that leap to go from large company like Microsoft, where you're very comfortable, good job there to like something that would probably change everything. And that was another leap. And so then for me, about as I was reaching a decade in at Facebook, kind of like, okay, what is my next next decade going to look like? And that was like, to me, it was clear, okay, I can't go work on another large company. I don't want to do a, not, like that again. But if I were to like go to a startup, why not my own startup? So that, that thought was first and foremost, like, okay, well, let's go do a company first. Then the idea of like, what should we build in the company was inspired by all the things that I learned at Facebook, which is, okay, what is something that I know that most people don't either know or appreciate? So you got to have both of those things. And then like, you know, can you bring that out and, and like think, see if there's actual demand in the industry for that? So I did a little bit of like, you know, market research and stuff like that and spent a little bit of time doing that. In the meantime, also like gathering a team uh, together. So in a way, the timing will never be right to take a leap like this. but you know how you know you 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 believe in something and you have to like convince other people to like jump off the cliff with you. Uh, when I started seeing that happen, when I started seeing people like, okay, we'll go with you. I was able to like grab seven other folks and like on day one, we were all starting at the same time. So all of us from Facebook. So that to me gave me the confidence, like, okay, this is an amazing team. And I think we have a solid idea. Let's go do it. That's beautiful. Knowing what you know now, and I believe Statsig on paper at least is about two years old, correct? So knowing what you know now, and I guess you can take Microsoft, Facebook, but two years in the startup, is there anything that you would tell VJ two years ago? Hey, don't do this. You know, because from outside looking in, it looks like you've hit the ball out of the park everywhere you go. But I would love to hear you say, yeah, two years ago, I wish I did this different. Oh no, there's there's hundreds of mistakes. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into. You hear about successful startups and you have a, a, this specific area definitely has a lot of survivorship bias and a lot of what you learn what what you hear. I mean even what I'm sharing right now it's it's a, it's a part of survivorship bias, right? So when you do a, when you start a company when you do what you're, what I'm doing you you make so many mistakes because there's no book or nobody that tells you how to I don't know like hire people first set of people for a startup how to go raise money how to get angels uh, how to get your first customer how to go sell you know I'll tell you one anecdote like you know before we actually had a product I was out there 
trying to like get a sense for like, would people use my product? And so I went to like, you know, talk to a whole bunch of my connections that are currently like, you know, building products. And so every time I would sit down and talk to them like, hey, this is what I'm thinking about building. And is this something that you would use? Every single person would say, yes, absolutely. This is a great idea. Until one time I was speaking with one of the CTOs of uh, this, this company, local company in Seattle. And he told me, you have to go read this book called Mom Test. Mom Test. Okay. Mom Test. And, and um, so like, what do you mean? Just go read. And, the, and the, our meeting ended like, you know, within five minutes. I was a little bummed, but, you know, so, so far everybody has said like amazing things about the product that I was going to build, this hypothetical product. And so I went and bought that book and I like started reading it. And it's all about how, you know, your mom will never tell you that you're wrong. Your mom will always encourage you. And that's what all of those people that I talked to before were doing. They were all telling me what I wanted to hear. Nobody actually told me the way it is. And so that book was eye-opening for me. And I was doing it all wrong. I was asking the wrong questions. I was giving this image of like, you know, what the product could be. And when in the abstract sense, everybody wants to help you. Everybody has the right intentions, good intentions, but good intentions don't mean anything. The good intentions are actually bad for your product and what you want to go build. And so that was the moment where I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to like figure out what we need to build. It's not, it's not the right time to go talk to customers, not the right time to go ask people uh, because you'll end up with contradictory opinions and, and advices. So a lot of like the first three, four months of what we built was built in vacuum. It's built like, you know, in the hopes that if we built this out, that's when we can actually put it out there and, uh, you know, in a way, make ourselves vulnerable and then get the actual right feedback. And so that's what we did. Four months in, we launched our beta of the product. When customers or when potential customers actually saw the product, they, they, they played around with it. That's when you would get the real feedback. And they'll, they'll tell you, oh, this is, this is, this doesn't work. This is bad. You got to fix this or, um, you know, this is all the way thought out wrong. Uh, and so, yeah, though, I mean, for us, or at least for me, it was a, it was an eye-opening moment. And, and then like, you know, then you go build the product and so on. The mom test. And I wrote, I wrote that down. I'll, I'll give that a read. How, via the book or now just on you, how would you change a question? Let's just dumb it down. Hey, do you like this product? How would you change that question now knowing what you've told us? Yeah, I think the you don't even actually start off with what you're planning on building. You don't talk about your product. And the first step is to talk about the problems that they are currently facing and then start to get more and more details about it. Like, okay, are you using data to uh, make product decisions? If not, why not? Uh, what kind of tools are you using today? How do these tools work together? What kinds of problems are you facing with your current tools? What would be one, if you had a magic wand, if you have like fixed something, what would this that one thing be? So whether, you know, you notice that you never talk about your product. It's all about like their problem, their pain points, their tooling, their process, their people, their culture. It's all about like, you know, what can you derive from their current situation? Because you're the one that's going to think a lot about the product, but they're the ones that have thought a lot about their problems. If you flip it around, they have given very little thought about what your product should be. And that's the way it should be. Right. So a lot of like after that, any of the conversations that I've ever had an opportunity to have with other founders and decision makers is all about like their problems, which is great. Love that. Question for you. 
have a million VJ because just I admire you so much for what you're doing. So you're two years in. We're sitting here. It's January 2023, COVID, right? And you know my my day job is you know corporate real estate for tech companies like yourself. Obviously, coming back to work is an issue. But I want to ask you a question: How did you or how do you create a culture of a startup company right in the heat of a global pandemic? I I can't imagine how hard that would be. Yeah, now it is hard. 2020 in February, I was um, the head of Seattle. And if you remember, Seattle was the kind of epicenter for COVID. Kirkland, uh, one of the um, old age homes was when the outbreak started. And so the Seattle office was one of the first ones to like have to make a decision of whether you bring employees back to office or not. This was in early, you know, late February 2020. I remember being in like calls with the security teams and some of these calls would go long and late in the night figuring out, okay, what are we, are, are the offices open tomorrow or not? And then we'll make a decision. So the way we ended up making a decision, like, okay, well, we're going to close it for, you know, Friday and over the weekend and we'll reopen it back on Monday. And in that time, we're not letting anyone into the office. We just don't want to like, you know, you know, open up any outbreak. So those are the kinds of decisions I was making at Facebook, on the, the Facebook Seattle office. We were the first ones to shut down the, the office. And then over time, we thought we'll reopen back in like a few days and a few weeks and a few months and like, you know, how things went. And then I actually ended up leaving Facebook. So we had to figure out going from like an in-person culture to a completely distributed remote culture abruptly. And so there's a lot of things that worked so well in an in-person culture that did not work well at all and including like onboarding so you know you know i always think like in a culture what is culture uh, if you if you want to define culture culture is a set of like unspoken or unwritten rules that you absorb through assimilation so it's kind of like you go you 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 see what other people are doing you think you know you you figure out what's the right way to say things right way to do things primarily by osmosis. You just look, observe, and you absorb. But that's culture. And when you can't do any of those, when you can't look and observe, how do you assimilate that? And then what happens, like, you know, you have to write it down. When you write it down, it loses its kind of like, you know, I, I guess like punch. It becomes rules, it becomes laws instead of culture. So we had to, every company had to figure out now, how do you maintain what the company's culture is? And how do you make sure that people understand that in a remote way? And it's very hard. It's very hard and very inefficient. And a lot of times you end up with like, you know, diluting your culture, fragmenting your culture. So I went through that entire process. So in February, 2021, when Statsig started, I made a decision. I'm like, we're going to be in person. This is early company. Whatever we decide now will become the foundation for what the company becomes. Um, they're successful for whatever reason. And I think culture is an extremely valuable part of like, you know, how successful or how fast you can be. And so it is important for me to like, you know, establish that. So I made the call that we are going to be in person. We actually have continued being that way. We've continued to attract people that want to be in person. Um, so there's there's a set of folks that kind of like are tired of like working remote and, they, and those are the folks that are coming. We also have said it's okay 
to trade off for the people that want to be remote, for the people that all want to be distributed, we lose them. Some of them really, really good folks, good engineers, good product managers, good data scientists that we cannot hire because of this particular rule. But that's a trade-off that we've decided to like accept and move forward. So since February 2021 till now, we're completely 100% in-person company. And that's helped me with like establishing what the value system is, what the culture is, and helped us move really fast. We have whiteboards that are never empty. It's always crippled with stuff and there's always people hanging around with whiteboards. And I mean, for me, it's kind of very hard to replicate some of those. I, you know, call me old school, but that's the way I've like built this company. Now it's music to my ears. I love, I love hearing that. <laughs> I've heard you say in the past, this is not a direct quote, VJ, but in general, that you continually try new things with your career in order to learn and find success in new areas. I'm saying that for my next question, which is, what do you think some key qualities are of an entrepreneur? Yeah, I'm a little early in my entrepreneurial journey to like actually give advice on that. However, there's a few things that actually stuck out with me. So, so even at Facebook, I founded a team that built app install ads. And so I worked on it. Um, and that business like quickly turned into a billion dollar business and then quickly turned into $10 billion business. But before, you know, in a normal sense, like, you know, when you, when you strike something like that, you kind of like want to grow a team. You kind of like want to, it's a very comfortable thing to like, you know, stay and grow that business. But somewhere between like, you know, five and $10 billion growth, I left that team to go start a new team within Facebook called the Audience Network. Um, and I grew that team from basically scratch to, um, again, like grow that into a, another billion dollar business. And then as it was growing, I kind of like had a, a kind of like inkling to like, okay, well, I'm tired of, tired of ads business. I want to go do something different. So I went and started uh, the team that then eventually became Marketplace. And so I was like the, the head of engineering for that particular team, grew that team into like, you know, a few hundred folks. And then, Again, I did the same thing. I was like, okay, Marketplace is in a good place. I want to go do something else. And I went and started the gaming team again, like from scratch, and then grew that into a larger team and then eventually like acquired the uh, the entertainment division as well. So for me, throughout this entire process, I've always like sought newer things, even at the kind of like, you know, in a way, it, it was to my detriment for my career to like not have to like stick, you know, not growing something that is guaranteed to grow, but go take a big risk on something completely new. And I had done that at Facebook for 10 years. And to me, I was like, okay, well, what is the ultimate risk that you can go do? And, and so like, you know, go do your own startup. So to me, I think that's, if, if you have an inkling to go build new things from scratch without heeding to like what is comfortable or what is, a sure shot in a way, high probability success case, right? And so if you have that, if you're constantly finding yourself jumping off a cliff and you want to try new things, then probably a startup is a good idea. <laughs> I love that. You're nailing it. And frankly, you're getting me just excited hearing the enthusiasm behind your voice. What's funny and why I'm smiling is that pre-podcast listeners, we, we talk a little bit before the show, you have told me that in personal, you're a creature of habit. You go to the same restaurants, same music, <laughs> like same everything, which is so funny because, you know, in, in the in the career side of it, you got to take these risks. You got to do all the things that you're doing. It's just funny that you have that stabilization on the other side. I know. It's, yeah. it's crazy, right? Um, yeah. my, my wife and my kids, they're like, oh, are we going back to the same restaurant? <laughs> 
That's so funny. Uh, VJ, I'm asking this question on purpose because I know the crystal ball for startups is so foggy months in advance. But five years from now, where would you like to see Statsig? I talk about this all the time. It's it's more kind of like an inspirational element for the, the company. So five years from now, Statsig will be a publicly traded company that is solving all of the data needs for every company out there. So right now we start off with like experimentation because that's a, a something that we're really, really good at, something that we're strong at. Nobody wants to buy a second rate product in the, in the industry. Everybody wants the first rate product. And so, so we want to be the number one in something. And we started off with experimentation, but that's kind of like not where hopefully we'll end. We'll, we want to like expand into other data products that people use. And so... Five years is a long time horizon, and I want to like make sure that we are one of the most successful data analytics company out there, and we will be publicly traded. I'm sure you will be. I love that. You ready for some fun rapid fire questions? Sure. <laughs> I'm doing it anyway, whether you're ready or not. Here we go. Your walk-up song. Are you a baseball fan at all, DJ? Um, no. Yeah, the Mariners up there. I know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, I watch. Yeah. All right. So. The walk-up song. This is Major League Baseball. When batters go up to the plate, they got the bat in their hand. They have a song that they get to play for themselves to pump them up. Is there a song that you, VJ, would be playing where you're about to take a swing up at the plate? Yeah, I love uh, Michael Jackson, Beat It. Um, oh, the, yeah. The initial tempo and the build-up. Oh, I love that. That's, yeah, that's da, 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 da. yeah, that's good. <laughs> I like that. All right. What is one thing, personally... You do not mind spending money on. Yeah, I think a good mattress is one. Yeah. That's definitely uh, something. And then um, experiences. So things that I can remember, things that, you know, usually involving family, things that my kids will remember for a very long time. So those experiences are always something that I don't mind spending money on. Creature of habit. Is there a vacation spot? Speaking of experiences that you like and go to all the time? All the time. So uh Growing up, we we weren't well off, so we never really traveled anywhere. And so it was kind of like this one little small town. So the first real vacation I took was with my wife when uh, when we got married and went on a honeymoon. And my first honeymoon was um, Kauai. Uh, and so that was like, I fell in love with that island. So, so much so that we went there basically like two, three times a year since then. And so that's a that's our always go to spot. Oh, love that. The Kauai is, I've been to Hawaii, Maui, and the Big Island a lot. I have never been to Kauai, and it's been on my bucket list for years. Oh, I need to go. To. I, you I, have I, to. I I'll give you recommendations. Go. Okay, got it. All right. Next next question. Favorite quote. I'm a quote geek. I love them. I have them on my calendar pop up almost every day. Is there a quote or quotes, VJ, that have stuck with you throughout time or one that as of late uh, has been at the top of your mind? Lots come to mind, um, but I'm going to pick one. I'm going to pick move fast and break things. This is one of the posters, one of the first posters that I saw when I went into the Palo Alto office at Facebook. You know, I, obviously that you know value has changed and morphed and evolved over time, but it, it evoked a kind of an emotion that I was, in a way, I wanted all the time, but never really got uh, in my previous jobs and experiences. And so that was... Uh, uh, the the first punch was like so memorable. Love that. Move fast, break things. Okay, next question. If you could choose, and I'm going to take away 
technology. I'm going to wait, take away medicine since we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. If you could choose a completely different position, career, whatever that is, what would it be and why? I love teaching kids computer science. Wow. Okay. So, you know, in fact, um, when I was in California, when I was like in a single guy, um, I actually signed up to go teach a school computer science in, in Gilroy, California. It was like you know, two hours drive from where I lived and I, I still did it um, and, and I loved it so much so that I actually created a, a, a coding project called Small Basic that I released through Microsoft. So it helps little kids um, learn programming. And then the funny story is like, you know, that actually got picked up by some of the curriculums in um, Argentina and Brazil. And so the, some of the kids there actually learn programming through small basic, this little thing that I created. And one of the one of the kids that grew up in Brazil eventually became a statistic employee. Oh my gosh. I know. It's this this crazy story. We were just chatting over lunchtime, and I was like, I just happened to bring up small basic. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, I know small basic. I learned programming through small basic. I was like, what the heck? Unbelievable. Yeah. So it was an unbelievable story. So I I that's it's a Something that I enjoy. If I retire, that's probably what I'll do. Wow, that's fantastic. And what a cool story. Next question. What would you do if you were given a free 60-second advertisement at the Super Bowl? Most most Super Bowl ads are about 30 seconds. It's the biggest TV audience of the year. But if you were given 60 seconds, VJ, what would you do or say? Uh, I can't think of anything other than like, you know, how to promote my company. Sure. No, that's great. (laughs) If you want to promote it. You know, you know, the funny thing about the Super Bowl, have you, you, you saw the Coinbase ad that they did with just a QR code that just floated around, man, that was brilliant. I mean, whoever, whoever came up with that, I like, that's brilliant. Yeah. I would totally do uh, something like that. Something along those lines, a QR code that sends people to Statsic. That's all. I mean, like at this point, at this point, it's all about the awareness, right? And so it's like, you have a great product that people love, people use it. They kind of like, retentive they want to come back and use more now it's all the question of like how do you get more and more people to use your product so i would take every opportunity super bowl sign me up yeah let's do it let's go okay next question vj if you were stranded on an island and could pick any celebrity dead or alive to be on the island with you who would it be and why oh man i would take richard feynman man this is that guy is just he is brilliant first of all and then secondly his ability to explain complex facts and you know make it so simple for everyone is just unparalleled. So yeah, I'll take him. Okay, like that. Old school. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next and last question. I call it the ultimate dinner. There's no consequences tomorrow is the basic gist. But VJ, what would you have on your plate or plates for that matter and in the glass? Okay. So I have craving every once in a while for Indian food. And so during festivals, there's this special kind of like Indian vegetarian food that they make and they serve it on a banana leaf. Ah, what would I give to have really one yeah. of those meals? Like, yeah, it was kind of like, you know, they, they, there's about 20 different items that they cook. My parents cook, you know, both my mom and dad will cook. And, you know, it's a very special thing, maybe one or two times a year and served on a banana leaf. So, yes, that would be something that I would love, love, love to have again. And is this something, can, can you cook? Can you attempt to do this or no way? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no way. No way. <laughs> 
oh, not really. But that would be my, if I were to like eat with no consequences, I would eat that all day. Oh, I love it. I love it. DJ, this has been such a fun hour. I knew it would be, but such a fun hour. You've given our listeners so much to take with them, either to learn from. There's a book you threw out there. Is there anything else, VJ, you'd like to, I guess, end the podcast with or say to the listeners? No, I think uh, there's, let's say, as much as your career takes shape and, you know, goes in unexpected ways, I've always found that, like, just leaning in has helped grow, just learn. One of the things that I've always felt is, like, I've, like, taken inspiration from so many people. I've, like, you know, had so many good mentors along the way and learned a lot from all of them. And then there comes a point in life where you want to like turn around and kind of spread the good to the rest of the folks, kind of like people that look up to you, people that look up to you as a mentor, people that want to learn from you and your career. So as much as possible, like if you turn around and give that back to the community, that is something that if you can take away one thing from this conversation would be awesome. And that's kind of like what I strive to do too as well. Perfect. Perfect way to end it. DJ, thank you so much for your time. I mean, thank you. Thanks for having me on this podcast. You bet. Thanks again, listeners. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vijay Raji. You can find Vijay on LinkedIn or his company website, statsig.com. That's S-T-A-T-S-I-G.com. And you can find me at my website, ramize.com. That's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and I hope you all learned something interesting.